Tips. This week on Behind the Idea, we're looking at JD.com, a value investor favorite China play that has had some bad headlines recently. We try to see what's lasting versus temporary, starting with the sexual assault accusations raised about CEO and founder Richard Liu. I don't know. And then investors are sort of free to do whatever they would with accusations of any type of criminal activity, let alone something as serious as sexual assault. But it's going to wind up mattering in the market just based on the fact that the decision process is a, has a direct impact on the company's fundamentals. Then we talk about the trade war and whether that's going to make a major difference for JD. I, I don't see this going lower because of trade war. I think it's latent upside, but only from a sort of headline noise perspective, not from an actual fundamental perspective. I, I think the trade wars is kind of silly. I think it may be a factor, but I think it's a silly factor for JD. Investment analysis is all about understanding what is and isn't in the market's price for a stock and whether that correlates to the underlying value. Given these bad headlines and other concerns, is JD cheap enough or is there more to fall? We break it down on this week's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm Daniel Schwartzman. And I'm Mike Taylor. Today we're talking about a hip China pick that has taken some serious heat over the last year. JD.com. Ticker symbol JD. The e-commerce company faces headwinds around the China-US trade discussions, as well as problems with CEO and founder Richard Liu, who faced an accusation of rape last year before charges were not pursued. Seeking Alpha author Long Hill Road Capital summarized the bull case in a recent article, which focuses on the company's market position in China and its low valuation, especially once you net out certain assets on the balance sheet. Has the stock dropped too far, or are the concerns justified in the company? We'll discuss today on Behind the Idea. Before we get started, Behind the Idea is the podcast that looks at what makes great investment analysis work. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. Neither Mike nor I have any positions in any stocks mentioned. You can subscribe to us wherever you get podcasts. And if you have the chance to leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, we'd really appreciate it as it'll help other investors find this podcast. Okay. So Mike, take it away. Long Hill Road Capital's article. What's, what's interesting to you from the bull case or, or where do we start? So Long Hill Road sort of is taking a some of the parts approach to JD.com, which just zooming out for a second is a kind of online retail company. It was founded by Richard Liu, who previously had done IRL, brick and mortar electronic sales and according to Wikipedia, had built a reputation as one of the few honest dealers of electronics in China, where there were many dishonest or sort of fraudulent goods being sold. And now it's a big tech giant. It gets mentioned in the same sentence with Alibaba. It gets analogized to US companies like Amazon, because now it's an online retailer of all sorts of stuff. It looks like electronics are a key component of what they provide, but they, if you go on their site, there's all sorts of different goods like DVDs and other and 
detergent, whatever else available for sale online in China. Longhill Road is saying that JD has kind of this sprawling asset base and a series of investments in other related ventures. If you add up the value of all of those investments, you get a pricing of the core JD.com business that's very attractive and actually kind of ridiculously attractive. I think that's the thrust of the thesis. And then the other important point that he makes is that the headwinds that have driven the stock price lower in the past year are temporary ones. And he points to two major ones. One is the trade war and the other is these rape accusations against Richard Liu, which may have driven investors out of the stock. So what do you make, Daniel, of the kind of fundamental valuation case that Long Hill Road is making? I think it's there are two things that I thought were interesting about the valuation case. One is that he's using EV sales as the metric, which EV enterprise value to sales or to revenue, I think has its uses. It kind of gives you a ballpark estimate of if you imagine the company to revert to some sort of normal margin profile, you can back into what a normal PE would be or whatever else. And so it's often used for growth companies. We've talked about it in the past. And before we get into the adjustments, the EV sales multiple is regardless quite low. I remember when we were talking about Alibaba last fall or summer, we were talking about you know the range of, if not the high single digits, even the teens. I think we were talking about the idea of what Facebook might trade for as compared to Alibaba, for example. And so in this case, it's much lower than that. I'll get into his number in a second. But I don't know if that's the best metric or not. I, I get the point that this is a growing company. It is growing quite fast on the top line, but ultimately, and you know, we should mention this is one article, presumably there's more work behind it. I, I don't mean to, I'm just addressing the article itself, but yeah. So I, I don't know if EV to revenue is the best way to do it. It still trades under one times EV revenue, which does seem attractive for a growing company, but I think you'd also need to see the story for what gets to profitability. The company is reported income per ADS, the the depository shares the trade in the US of 23 cents in the first nine months of 2018. So we're still talking about quite a hefty PE and free cash flow also, I think, is turned negative in 2018. There was, it looked like working capital probably sucked up a lot of cash. It's kind of tough to tell. Anyway, so I guess that's question one for me. Is EV sales the best metric? Any thoughts before moving to my other, other thought about the valuation? Yeah, just for, well, I was, so the editorial team's gotten together this past week and I was talking with some of the SA Pro Plus editors about valuation metrics and we were talking about, you know, can you price something in terms of gross margins? Can you price something in terms of sales? And their answer, particularly uh, our colleague Mark Penikoff's answer was, it depends on the circumstance. And like you said, there needs to be some justification for using a particular metric. In the case of EV sales, it probably has something to do with 
some assumption of eventual cash flows tracking alongside with the revenues. I also think if you're, I, I can see you using it less on a standalone basis and more relative to comparable companies. That might make more sense. Of course, that doesn't, that gets more into price as Professor DeMotorin would say rather than value, but still seeing what the market is thinking is interesting to me. And I just, EV sales below one might not be that unusual, but I think it might be unusual for a company with a lot of growth. Just, I pulled up a company that is about as boring, but stable and profitable as you can get, which is FedEx. And their EV sales sales ratio is 0.89. So their enterprise value is somewhat a little bit lower than their total revenue number. And that's sort of how I think of an EV sales multiple below one as being often applicable to companies that have thin but very stable margins and a high degree of sustainable profitability. You can often see that number sort of settling in at somewhere below one. So that to me means that we need to do some investigating on JD, given that it has a kind of high growth story attached to it. I almost come at this from the opposite direction. It's like, what is the market seeing here? How do we tell ourselves a story that's bad enough that drives such a low EV sales valuation? Okay, that's interesting. Did you did you tell the Pro Plus editors that you're a gross margin fan? I did. I did. Yeah, I'm a gross margins guy. And I told them that and they, Mark thought he, he went along with me on it a little bit. I think, you know, basing, basically, if you can back out some sort of assumption about the SGNA and operating expenses, and you think that for whatever reason, those are going to, you're eventually going to be able to back out some of them or that the operating expenses for whatever reason are not reflective of the long-term characteristics of the business, then gross margin you could actually throw in there as a potential valuation metric. And I was very encouraged by that because to have validation from some of my colleagues on some of my own thought processes feels feels very nice. Uh, They would have told me if they thought I was stupid and uh, they they did not. So yeah, I'm having a great week here. Great week for gross margins. (laughs) So the uh, I'm, I'm really happy for gross margins right now. Uh, you and, and me both. Yes, I'm just over the moon about it. Yeah. The so the other part of the the valuation here is also that the author backs out. JD has a lot of what the author refers to as non consolidated equity stakes. Essentially, they've invested. I think often in. Uh, indirect or privately placed deals rather than buying on the open market, but it doesn't really matter. They've they've invested in a bunch of different companies, VipShop, BitAuto, Tunio. Not all of these are traded in public. I think the author estimates a handful of them based on their last private announced valuation. But I thought this was interesting too. I should say, first of all, it doesn't really change the valuation that much. The just as you were speaking, I just did the quick math. It looks like the company would be valued at 0.43 times 
revenue instead of the author's adjusted number of 0.27. So that's a difference. But if if fair value is 0.75 is the author's ultimate argument, then it's not a deal breaker. There's still a margin of safety if you want to think about it that way. So just one point. But I also thought this was interesting. So they have a bunch of equity investments. A lot of them are publicly traded. So in theory, yeah, you could just say the company could sell their stake and then then that would be cash on the balance sheet. I guess that's what the argument is here. But what I wonder about is, first of all, if they're not going to do that, and we're talking about in some cases almost 50% stakes or 30, you know, big stakes in these companies, if they're not going to divest in these stakes, then is that the right way to think about it? Do we need to adjust for the underlying valuations of these companies rather than their prices? Again, sort of the price value distinction, where essentially backing out the price of all their stakes, is that the correct way to assess their value? And then, I don't know, if they've got this money tied up, you think of enterprise value as your value less your net cash or debt, and that's money that is... The, the idea, I think, is partly that that's money that – or that's the value in theory that it just takes to run the business. In theory, the cash is extra or whatever else. So sometimes you'll adjust EV if a company really needs the cash to run the business. In this case, like they've tied up the cash. I don't have any clear thought process for when – or knowledge of when they might divest in any of these. So I, I just think that that's interesting and that's before you get into the habit that these big China companies have of investing, of splashing cash into of essentially acting like venture capital funds within China, which is something we talked about with Ann Stevenson Yang back in those Baba talks. So I, I don't know. Those are the things that stood out about this aspect of the approach. What, what say you? Yeah, I think there's a risk here and there's a little bit of shaky ground we're on when we're talking about transaction value of businesses and pricing valuing components of the business or valuing equity investments in terms of the prior transaction value. Obviously, the market thinks that something has changed in the past year and is discounting the value of JD.com's asset base overall. So we want to be careful about assigning value to some components of the business based on the value at which JD invested because something may have changed. I kind of think of comparable transaction or takeover value, that type of valuation process applying more to situations where you have a very clear idea of the business's fundamental characteristics almost to a ridiculous degree. Say someone has, owns a private pool cleaning service. And, you know, we have a history of probably the pool cleaning industry hasn't changed very much in the past several decades. We have a ton of information in theory about how these businesses have been priced in the past, and then you say, okay, we'll just use precedent transactions to value this new pool cleaning service because it's going to be pretty similar in value to any of these precedent transactions we have. 
I'm a little bit skeptical that we can apply that same framework to these Chinese technology companies that are growing fast or still trying to find out what their business model is. We know that JD sort of runs around a break even on a profitability or cash flow standpoint, which means that we are not yet at the point where the business is mature enough to start generating profits for investors. Just dropping in for a quick note and listening back to this, I wondered about a point we missed. Why is it a good thing JD is invested in all these random internet companies in China? How does that help them when they are not yet profitable? If you have any thoughts on this, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com because I'd love to hear it or comment on the article when we post it on Seeking Alpha. Again, your input would be really valuable here. Back to the show. So all of these factors kind of complicate the thought process of using precedent transactions to value these business stakes. And then on top of that, we also have sort of these questionable issues of around intercompany investments in China, which often lead to a lot of opacity in terms of the financial reporting. And additionally, the opportunity for some misleading accounting to emerge based on any related party transactions that might take place between a parent and its subsidiaries. And that's certainly something that Anne Stevenson Yang has referenced previously in some of her skeptical work on Baba and some of these other Chinese companies. So I'm not in love with this thought process. I think that it's a good way of getting a rough sense of a potential value opportunity. And again, the discount we're looking at here seems to be really wide, which lends credibility to the thesis. But again, I think you could probably make some adjustments that make this opportunity look a lot more efficiently priced. Well, and I think that's partly what it is too, right? Is that the idea of analysis is to make your own, do your own math, do your own layering of what matters and what doesn't and doing your own adjustments, et cetera. And so that's a note of praise for this. Long Hill Road Capital is taking an independent approach and reaching a conclusion that they find relevant for JD. But I think there's two aspects of this, right? There's what you look for to make your own decision, but then also ultimately price has to agree with you at some point. So you're determining value, but at some point you want to get a price that you can then sell those shares at, or you know it pays dividends, et cetera. I know there's other techniques, but ultimately the market needs to agree with you. And so sometimes I, th- I think about that with some of the parts a lot. Because it's there sometimes, but you got to kind of twist yourself into seeing that. And by the time you see it, does that mean that's what the market's going to see? I had a stock that I owned for a long time that I I was just thinking about it because it was ultimately a really disappointing investment. It was, I think, I think it was profitable in the end, but probably behind the market. It was this EVC, Entravision, Entravision. It was a you know local broadcaster of Univision stations, and they had this big spectrum value. There was an auction in 2017, I think, for TV spectrum that could be repurposed for cell phones or other uses of the spectrum. There was, and one of my favorite authors in Seeking Alpha, Lord Baltimore, was all over it. I had invested in the idea independent before that analysis came out and had no idea about it, but then 
I was like, oh, that's nice. That really makes it compelling. And it was this big event. And I think people eventually knew about it. And the stock basically peaked as soon as maybe the first report that the cash from that sale showed up on their balance sheet, or maybe even the report before that. And then it just, and then you were kind of like, all right, you've got all this cash. There's no great plan of how to use it. The underlying business is not all that strong. I eventually sold because the business just wasn't doing well. And I tell that shaggy dog story because I think that's where picking the right metric and understanding how the market is viewing a stock really matters because ultimately you can use EV sales instead of price to earnings or you can adjust for all these things. But ultimately you need other investors to be thinking at least one other investor to be thinking in a similar way to you to sell it at a price you're interested in selling it for. And that's why sometimes we overthink things when ultimately that's what's so attractive about price to earnings or price to free cash flow or whatever. The classic metrics is that there's some consensus on more or less what they stand for and what you want to do with those stocks. So I don't know. I, I think I digressed a little no, bit, think, but that's sort of what this valuation I think I mean, gets me thinking of. To give another shaggy dog story that sort of makes this point again is, you know, I did a I wrote an article on Seeking Alpha about cars.com and I valued it at a price that I thought I could buy it at, which has never been much more than 50% of what the market price is. And if you go back to my pool cleaning company analogy, if you have a metric that works very well for pool cleaning companies, you, you only confine your precedent transaction thought process to places where it's very sure to work, then you're going to confine your opportunity set only to places where you're very sure that it's very short sure work. So I'm going to only buy cars.com business when it reaches a ridiculously low valuation because I'm so adherent to my basic thought process. If I have a tool that works for pool cleaning companies and only use it for that, then I'm only going to wind up buying pool cleaning companies. So I think your point about being mentally flexible and showing, adapting a thought process to a specific company or a specific situation. I think that is the strength of what Long Hill Road Capital is doing here. And it's easy for us, and we do it almost every episode. We sit back and say, well, I don't know this, you know, but for me, I'd, I'm getting made fun of by the Pro Plus editors because I never rarely make any individual company investments because I don't have that kind of adaptability built into my arsenal. And as much as that might be rigor in your process, you could also argue that it's rigidity, inflexibility, and a lack of sophistication. And I would definitely would plead guilty to those charges if anyone were to levy them at me. I think, so coming back around, I'm not sure we're going to get too much out of trying to build out our own assessment of the valuation of JD.com, where I kind of see the richness of the conversation from here is we're at 0.47 EV to sales, something like that. Long Hill Road even goes lower than that. We can kind of all agree that that's just very low. It's sort of ludicrously low when you think about compared just compared to FedEx, which is a boring company, but a stable one, you know, that's much closer to one times EV sales or take 
any a lot of different companies are kind of in that range. Given the potential growth characteristics of JD.com, its market dominance, some other really attractive things about the business, what I am interested in is how much of how much of the valuation disconnect there are these temporary headwinds that Long Hill Road Research points to, and how many of them are these sort of accounting issues or precedent transaction issues? How much of it is problems with the fundamentals of the company? How much of it is noisy headlines like the trade war dispute or these kind of accusations of rape with the charges subsequently not being pursued against Richard Liu? And I think it might be like 50-50. Which, which would, I think, eventually go to a bull case. Because if you do believe that some of those headwinds are temporary, then even if there's kind of nastiness in trying to come, come up with a compelling valuation of the company, there still could be upside here. So what do you, what do you think about the proportion of sort of bad news versus trying the difficulty of valuing a high growth Chinese company? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I, it, my prior, view on JD before looking at the article closely is that this has been kind of a value compounder. It's sort of like I said in the intro, been the hip play in China. Baba is sort of the U2 in China. JD is a little bit cooler. It's a little bit more, you're you're making an effort if you invest in JD and not Baba. It's, yeah, Yes, it's the shins, shins. In- including the quality. Before Garden. <laughs> including the quality. <laughs> including Maybe the after Garden safe. It's on FinTwit. It's like, it's like everyone after. knows about it. It's the hip one everyone knows about. It is a FinTwit favorite, I think. People are like, you like Baba, maybe, but the real dudes and dudettes know about JD. I think there's a little bit of that. <laughs> I think there is. And so, and you know, just, I was, we've got the new, for essential subscribers, we have the new sentiment thing on our quote page where you can see the sentiment of authors who have written up the stock in the last 90 days. And it's very green, very bullish. And so that, that was my prior view of the company. And so in terms of these, I I thought that the stock had been a, poor performer since it came out and it sort of has it, it had a really good 2016 to 17 run and that has fallen off related to potentially these temporary issues so and there's probably a way to you know you could probably just put JD on a chart with Baba and see how much they correlate and how much there's a disconnect as far as you know this Answering your question specifically, I don't know that I'd put a percentage on it, but yeah, I, I can buy that the trade war has been a headwind for China stocks in general. There's, and even more that actually, I think more fundamentally than the trade war itself is the Chinese economy, which is still purported to be growing at its slowest rate in quite a while. And there's still lots of questions around China from a, if you take the numbers at face value, it still seems like it's, Slowing, so I can see that. I can see that playing a role here. And then, yeah, I think the the 
the rape accusation is is also sort of if you're suspecting where there's some alpha, as it were, some differentiation between JD and other China stocks, you that would seem to be it. Um, you know, and I don't think we can get too deeply into this position. Essentially, Richard Liu was in Minneapolis, was accused of uh, was accused of rape by a woman. He claimed that it was consensual and there was, you know, a lot of bad headlines, a lot of reporting around this. In the end, the Minneapolis prosecutors did not pursue charges. It's still sort of unsettling, unsettling, setting aside the cultural context or anything else. Richard Liu has a 16% stake in the company is the founder, CEO, I believe the chairman and also has 80% of the shareholder vote, which means essentially it's his company and he can do whatever he wants. They have, you know, I read an article from Reuters where they point out that the company has investors such as Tencent, Walmart, and Google in them, and they can't really do anything with that because he owns all the vote. And so I think given that and given the sort of power that we see in a lot of these modern tech companies invested in the CEO and founder. When you have that sort of exposure, on the one hand, it's a convenient peg for understanding and believing the company. Instead of having to digest everything, you just learn about somebody's biography and that makes it easier to sort of put it on your map. But on the flip side, it leaves you, if things go wrong, if there are concerns with the CEO, then it's not just some tawdry or you know criminal or any other sort of act. It has a direct implication on what the business is like in the same you know in similar way to you know concerns over the guy who founded Uber. Like there's, I, I'm not equating whatever issues there were, but it's just like all of a sudden if you're identified with a person and that person is just a person, you're vulnerable to problems if something goes wrong. What do you think? Yeah, I think there's a tendency to add a layer of trust because we want to sort of ascribe greatness to people who build large business empires. And there are often, we come back to this concept of these story CEOs or these charismatic founders. I do think that investors use those narratives around people's personalities and personas as a way of trying to assess how confident they should be in management. And that's a requirement from a sort of governance standpoint in the case of JD.com, where you have Lou holding 80% of the voting rights. That means that as a shareholder, you are basically subject to his decision process with very few avenues of recourse. So it's an interesting phenomenon because the stock probably builds in some level of confidence based around the narrative around the person. And that can happen whether or not the person directly affects the company's prospects. But in this case, there is a direct connection between the person himself and 
the future of the company and the future value of the stock. So it's interesting to me that this narrative can sometimes be misplaced, but you also, the person and the person's decision-making process does make a significant difference in investor outcomes when the shareholder voting power is so concentrated in one person's hands. I don't know. And then investors are sort of free to do whatever they would with accusations of any type of criminal activity, let alone something as serious as sexual assault. But it's going to wind up mattering in the market just based on the fact that the decision process is a, has a direct impact on the company's fundamentals. And I think on top of all that, whatever myth-making had kind of taken place around Richard Liu before, I mentioned that there's this kind of legend of him doing various kind of heroic acts in China or being this man of integrity around selling electronics equipment in a market that's not very trustworthy. When you have something like this emerge, investors rethink the narrative both on the myth-making level and this person being larger than life and a great person, and also on the level of how good is this person's decision process in general, how much of that is going to affect the corporate decision-making and governance issues when that person holds so much control over the direction of the business. So I think that... to the extent the market has decided to revalue JD in light of this news, there was some, there's a rationale for that. I, I wouldn't, com- so in that sense, the headwinds may not be temporary. This may be a, a, a good repricing based on what the market is gathering about Richard Liu's decision making, questions emerging around his character, I think, regardless, we'll we'll emphasize, you know, the charges are not being pursued. The accusation did take place, though. And that has something to say about what kind of situation a person might or might not put themselves in, etc. I don't want to go too much further here. But I think it's important to recognize that that's potentially not a temporary thing. If the market had previously been pricing in a perfect decision maker, man of great integrity, and now has this other fly in the ointment, whatever the truth might be, that might be fair. That might not be an unfair, harsh valuation. That might be appropriate. What do you think? Yeah, I think that maybe what we can do here is sort of break this down then into the different things that might be causing JD's valuation. We could even do, if you're up for it, Mike, we could do a lightning round here on the different sort of valuation factors that you could perceive as negatives and just go into how enduring they might be. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Lightning round. Okay. So let's, we've, we've got two topics that we just hit. So trade war, how enduring is this as a problem for JD.com? And how does that story change? Two to six years. I think that a change in the U.S. presidential 
administration, trade policy is likely to revert more closely to what it had been previously. We've talked in the past about how uh, Peter Navarro and some of the other people in the U.S. presidential administration have what a lot of people consider to be fairly unconventional views about things like the U.S.'s trade deficit with China, et cetera. While I think the dynamic has shifted to become more adversarial in general and the intellectual property issues and some of the other trade practices that people are questioning about China have been longer enduring, I think that the the solution of tariffs as a way of, of punitively trying to extract value from China is is a tactic that's confined more to this presidential administration. So whether President Trump serves out his first term and loses a subsequent election or uh, is reelected to the two terms, I think that that would be on the long on the long end of the durability of this issue would be six years. And I think it's probably shorter than that. Okay. Interesting. I, or should, we, should we, yeah. I would say the actual stock market impact is shorter. I, I would say just briefly on your political analysis, arguably at this point in time, the democratic candidate who would beat Trump, if, if one would in the coming election is not one that I would assume would be super favorite, super old school free trade laissez faire approach. And, you know, they talked about with the tax bill, how in some sense, getting rid of those, some of the key deductions actually expanded the base where in the future you could imagine more tax hikes on a broader base. I sort of think that with China, just off the cuff, I'm saying this, the bar has been changed or the base has been changed to where now you, you have more, it actually opens up the playbook for more stuff like this. So I don't have any heft behind that, but just a thought. But yeah, I don't think, I don't think the trade war, I think it's a macro thing that sort of does or doesn't play out. The corollary of China's slowing economy is a bigger deal, but honestly, I sort of think that, that JD, that doesn't seem like JD's problem in and of itself, unless you think that there's some house of cards, and we'll get into that in a in a second. So other, so you think zero? You think zero on trade war? You think it's price? I think it's probably yeah. I, I think we're at. I I don't see this going lower because of trade war. I think it's latent upside, but only from a sort of headline noise perspective, not from an actual fundamental perspective. I think the trade wars is okay. kind of silly. I think it may be a factor, but I think it's a silly factor for JD. That's my take. This is a really slow lightning round. Let's go to the next so, topic. How, the next one. how enduring is the, are these accusations going to be a factor for the stock price? And what's the, and what's the way out of it? How does, how does the market change its mind about this being a big deal or not? I think that's, I think that's in and, I think that additional events would have to take place for further issues to impact the stock. Meaning he's not being, he's not being charged. There is some question, you know, there have been past events without going into detail where similar scenarios have played out. He, he doesn't have a sort of squeaky 
clean record when it comes to uh, conduct with respect to women. And people can look him up on Wikipedia, find out more about some of those things. Uh, but I think it's, I don't see this as, as continuing to overhang on the stock, really. I think that that kind of selling is done at this point. Okay. I think that's you? fair. I think that's fair. Um, so what about how enduring is just the sort of things that come up with China companies a lot? We, from that Reuters article that I quoted there, they bring up the point of variable interest entities. You have just the governance issues in general. How much does that stand out? It wasn't addressed super, it wasn't addressed, I don't think, in Long Hill Road's cap, Capital's article, but how big of a deal should that be, the governance concerns that might come up with many China companies? Sort of paradoxically, part of the tra- one of the outcomes of a trade war could eventually be that some of the rules China puts in place in terms of the public-private partnerships and the joint venture requirements they impose and the sort of lax treatment that Chinese regulators have uh, with respect to the financial reporting outward to international investors, that could be on the table here in terms of a, a, a more favorable outcome to U.S. investors in Chinese companies. You would think that sort of over the long term, transparency and information exchange and proper corporate governance is something that sort of transmits throughout the world and eventually obtains in developing economies. Now I'm out over my skis, but I think of like Brazil or or Russia or some Eastern European countries where we kind of have seen they still have plenty of issues, but eventually you, you reach a sort of more steady equilibrium where investors know more and get smarter and companies generally eventually come around to the idea that disclosing more is better in the long run. But I could see that we're kind of in uncharted waters with China because a lot of these U.S. listings are, it's not that old of a phenomenon, I think. So it's hard to sort of draw comparisons or think of an example of a company that's sort of been at the level of transparency that we'd like to see out of China. A, a decade? 15 years? 20 years? It feels like a generational shift would have to take place on that. Okay. So maybe last lightning round question. One of the points that Ann Stevenson Yang made when we had her on about Baba, as far as I recall, I may be conflating with other times I've heard her speak, but is that the money supply in China may slow China's economy may have trouble over coming years. How much should investors in a company like JDU.com be thinking about that? Wow. I didn't say the easy round. A lot. <laughs> this is not the easy round. It's the lightning round. A lot, man. I, and I have no view. I don't know where, I don't really know where, it seems like China's in some kind of early stage slowdown, but it's also seemed like that for the past five years. I'll go seven years with the seven-year economic cycle, Elliott wave, Condrative wave, debt cycle model. I don't, I don't know. I, so I'll just take a guess at at seven years as, as in the Bible. 
And so that's probably the average. Seven lean years or seven years <laughs> of feasting, one or the other. Bounteous <laughs> years in China. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I think the China cycle is a big deal. I don't know how to measure it. So I think it matters, but I don't know. I have a view. It seems like there's a... I still just have the hunch that there's some flight to safety elements there. So if you're worried about China, and it would seem to me like you could hedge out that risk while owning the big companies and kind of capturing some sort of spread along that. But obviously it takes a lot more analysis to decide if you actually have the right dynamics of that pair trade. Mm. Short out the market risk. I like it. So that was a great lightning round. Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed it. (laughs) That second lightning strike took like (laughs) 10 minutes, but I'm into it. We'll get faster lightning for next time. Order some on JD.com. There we go. So maybe the last question then is, because I think what that sort of pulled me towards is all this priced in. The stock is has recovered a little bit. It's up, it looks like about 20% since the market bottom in the late in around Christmas Eve. And at its worst, it had sold off something like 60% in 2018. So we've recovered some, but it's still about half of its all-time highs. Is all this again, without being glib about the real world implications here, is all this priced into JD's stock or what? I I know we're kind of going on short information, but just what's your sort of take on it based on what we've talked on so far? So (laughs) if you look at Alibaba's EV sales, they're at nine. (laughs) It's probably not a clean comp, right? But even if you take some... I think Long Hill Road, you say probably your margin of safety using their valuation process somewhere around 50%. That this is that there's 100% upside in the stock. I kind of buy the case. And if you go like 25%, 25%, 25%, I think we've found components of that discount. We can convince ourselves that some of those components are probably temporary or sort of illusory. So I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, but I kind of, you can talk yourself into the opportunity here. If you're going to be brave enough, which, you know, I am sticking with my pool companies. I'm not brave enough. There is. I think the thought process makes a lot of sense if you break it down that way. I think you can you can at least decide for yourself how much each thing matters and then build a model that makes sense for you. And I think the way uh, Long Hill Road has done it is uh, compelling. What about you? Yeah, I uh, have to do a lot more work to make a real definitive conclusion. I think the China aspects that we've alluded to still would probably keep me away from this, even setting aside, I, I again, not terribly concerned about trade war, concerned about the CEO and behavior and what that means for decision-making, what that means for, for example, whether or not they'd ever sell the company. I don't know if anybody would ever buy it or like 
the future of the company, I would have some concerns there. But in terms of just on its face, like, yeah, the stock is still down around 50% from its highs and does appear to be growing, you know, on the accounting, a little bit concerned about the cash flow dynamics. I'd want to understand when it gets to profitability, but I think there is a a compelling case even without backing out all those assets on the balance sheet there's a compelling case that this is a low valued stock and that there is an opportunity if you can f- understand it understand its market role or whatever i mean assuming those sales like that's a lot of money a lot of revenue <laughs> assuming you're delivering w- some real value to customers there should be a way to translate that into pr- sustainable profits and thus into a meaningful valuation sure final thought from me i often go back to like let's just diversify not worry about this company specific stuff but i'm coming around to with china and its unique dynamics that may actually be a space where you wouldn't want to just have a diversified index holding in the market and security analysis would be all the more valuable just based on all the market-wide dynamics we talked about trade war and we talked about accounting and governance issues that are specific to china that you're not necessarily going to be able to diversify away i think one thing that i'm starting to consider as a result of this discussion is that sometimes you want to do security analysis instead of diversify and this might be one situation where stock picking would actually potentially leave you better off than holding a, a market-wide position. You could say that sometimes you want to seek alpha. Boom! <laughs> <laughs> you could say that, though. I'm just saying. I don't know if the show I... is over, but I think I'm I'm hanging up now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's end on that note. Thanks, everybody. Okay. Thanks, <laughs> All right. thanks, Mike. Bye, Daniel. Bye. <laughs> thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We're going to start doing interview follow-ups on our 2019 episodes to date. So if you have any requests for guests or topics that we should linger on, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com or tweet us at at danielseekinga or at Taylor. Subscribe to this wherever you get podcasts and leave us a review when you have the chance. This has been Seeking Alpha Production. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Behind the Idea.